Would you please join with me in the very last gospel of the scriptures? It is the last book of the Bible. It is the last words of God into this dark world in desperate need of hope and grace, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so join with me in Revelation chapter 1, as we read again the greetings of Christ and of John unto the seven churches. And then following the reading of chapter 1 in Revelation, we will then move over to chapter 3, where the text of our message will be in chapter 3, verse 7 through 13, the message of Christ to the church in Philadelphia. And so the text of our message will be Revelation 3, 7 through 13, but let's begin in Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierce him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hates. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Christ says that sheep will hear his voice. And Father, let us have ears to hear what he says to us this morning. We pray that we will be faithful listeners, faithful hearers. Let us hear. And, O Father, when we hear, let us hear those familiar tunes of hope and of grace and of restoration. Let us hear those familiar tunes calling us back out of our sin and out of our waywardness. Breathe into the embers that seem to be dying out. Breathe into them new life and new air. And, Father, ignite within us a heart for Christ, like Christ. Father, we pray that you would just minister through your word into all of our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is Christ the Door. We need to understand something this morning about the way in which God works. God rejoices in his work. God rejoices in his work. Now, his people fill the place uh, with the sound of rejoicing in God's work. And this morning, we have already echoed the sound, the familiar sound of singing praise unto God for his work. But God rejoices in his work. In Genesis 1, in our earlier reading this morning, 
After every, at the end of every creative act that God had done, he rejoiced in his own work. That, that, and he said it was good. Is God rejoicing in his work? Okay? It wasn't just, it's okay. Uh, that'll do. God was rejoicing in his work. And he invites us into that celebration of his work. But God does not rejoice in man's work. That is just man's own energies and man's own attempts at work. God is always rejoicing in his work and he is never negligent. He never fails to bring glory to that which he has done. Although we many times may fail to bring glory to what God has done. But the central idea in the way in which God works and the central idea in God's work has always been what God will accomplish through his word. That's signaled to us in the very first page of our Bible. God spoke, his word went out from him, and it continues to do great things. And the central idea really from the very first page of our Bible is to pay attention to what God's word is going to do. So creation itself is a result of God's word. God said, let there be light, and light couldn't stand it. It had to be because God said, let there be light. Nothing stood in the way of light. God's word has a creating power, and it always accomplishes what God desires for it to do. God's work is, God's word is effectual. It is omnipotent. Nothing can withstand the creative power of God's word. The darkness couldn't hold back the light, and light was formed. Let there be light. Not darkness, not the devil, and no man on earth can stand against the power of the word of God. And when God created the world and looked at all of it, what he said about his works and his created power in, in the world is that he said it was good and he rejoiced in what he had done. Jesus and God and the Spirit were completely satisfied. It met all of his expectations. And this is how it was when the universe began. The universe began with God's complete satisfaction and with his rejoicing in what his word had done. But when the world fell into the sin, it would need to be God's word that would speak again. It would need to be God's word to reconcile this world to what he had created it to be like. Nothing but the word would have the power to redeem this fallen creation that was created by his word. His word was needed to reconcile the world back unto himself, just like when he had created it in the first place. His word was still necessary. And so we learn in John 1, 1, that his word becomes incarnated, that it is his word becomes clothed with his own creation. And it would be... Jesus would be clothed, he would be the clothed word of God to more greatly reveal God's plan. We don't know how much it costs God to create all the universe. Likely, it costs him nothing. But we recall to mind, what would it cost God to reclaim the world? 
to reconcile the world, to redeem the world back into the purity of his presence, back into the purity of his will? What would it cost God to reclaim this universe, the world, and the human heart that had now become fallen? It would cost God really everything. It would cost God his dearly beloved and his only begotten son. And so again, we find that the word of God becomes the central focus of all of his works. God accomplishes all things by his word. When, when we are convicted, when man is convicted um, about his sin, it is God's word that convicts him. And a person can only be guided by God's word. And God, is, is used, God uses his word to do great things through a person. And when God's word accomplishes his work, we rejoice in those things that God has done. We recognize that it is his work, his word working through us to do wonderfully and powerfully things unto the delight of God. So we rejoice, we erupt in rejoicing and say, unto you, unto you only is our boasting, O God. When man rejoices, when God's people rejoice, it is because of what God has done. And when we rejoice in what God has done, listen, we become more like God himself. We are imitating God. This morning, we had sung praises and testified this morning, both in the presence, the physical presence of just being here, showing up, then also by the, the warm greetings of the holy bonds that we share with one another in prayer and reading of scripture and certainly in the rejoicing in music. What we have been doing this morning is we had merely been imitating what God has always been doing and that is rejoicing in the powerful working of his word. We're just imitating the great rejoicer himself. If we want to learn how to be worshipers, we examine God. How does God worship? This morning, as Jesus approaches this church in Philadelphia, he approaches this small band of believers, likely a very small band of believers, through Jesus Christ, his son. And he approaches them, notice, in, in many forms, Notice in verse number seven, he approaches them, by the way, through, notice, the words. God's word is sufficient for the edifying of his church. We're not lacking anything to build the church of Christ. We're not lacking anything to fill up the rejoicing of Christ so long as we have the word of God. And the way in which God approached this this band of believers in the city of Philadelphia was he approached them through his son, Jesus Christ, in the words, and then notice, of the Holy One, the words of the true one, the words of the one who has the key of David, the words of the one who, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, the words of this type of person. Now, the city of Philadelphia was an ancient city and received its name out of the love of a brother. There were two brothers who rose to really um, uh, being famous kings in centuries before Christ. One, one loved the other so much that he really had such a bond that, that he had given him this plot of land and said, here's the resources, here's wealth, build for yourself a city. And so Philadelphia became the name out of respect of one brother for the other. 
And it was a thriving city, but it was a city that was uh, shaped by agriculture, uh, by the means of something that would seem to be uh, uh, some, some, uh, somewhat of a negative uh, spot in, uh, in geography. Usually when there's volcanoes, around the volcanoes is lush and fertile soil. Something about how God just has a way of, of life and death, and death brings life. Well, this brother had built this city really around a volcano. And with this volcano came several eruptions through ancient history, but especially if there weren't just, you know, these magnificent lava-filled eruptions, there was at least the tremors and earthquakes. And so often the people that had built their, their houses in the city around this volcano, as soon as the earth would shake, they would run from the city. They would run from their homes and go on the outskirts. And by the time of the writing here, likely historians record by the time that John writes this, the majority of the city actually lived outside of the city. They just decided, well, if we're going to run for our lives outside the city, might as well just build our homes outside of the city for fear of their life. An earthquake had happened not too, not too distant in, in the past in Philadelphia, and the people were mindful of what it meant as soon as you started to feel the ground shake. And Jesus comes to these people in Philadelphia, and he comes and he represents himself, as we had shared before, as, as the Holy One. This is a title that is attributed to God, by the way. This is not a title that it's ever given to man. No man, no human has ever borne this title, the Holy One. It is a definite article, and it really means all of what you have learned before about God's holiness, and that is that he is without flaw. He is infinitely pure. He is unblemished. And it is, by the way, a common designation for the anointed one. It is a common designation for the Messiah. When Jesus approached the demons in Mark chapter 1, the demons cried out and said unto Jesus, What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Not just a Holy One, not just some sort of religious leader, not a revolutionist, but you are the Holy One. You are the one that we've always known, the Eternal One. You are the Holy One. They recognize and they place this title upon Jesus. And Jesus here again now in Revelation 3 bears upon himself this title again. I am the Holy One. In Luke 1, as the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, uh, he tells Mary, um, uh, he, will, he will describe Jesus as being the Holy Child. The Holy Child. Now, by the way, have any of you ever called your children holy? But this is a designation here. Is a designation here signifying there's something really divine about this child. But this is a common and yet descriptive term. More than a term, it is a name for Jesus. And it is a direct claim by Jesus that he is no less than God himself here in this passage. God is coming to you, Philadelphia. I am coming to you. And because Jesus is holy... As he comes to his church, the effect that he desires to have amidst his people and the desire that Jesus has for us as a church is that we be holy too. Christ is holy, and he doesn't leave us how we are. He desires to make us, he desires to purify us into being a holy people. But then he also calls himself the true one, the true one. The idea here is the real one, the real deal, if, if you will. The, 
In, in Hebrew, if this was to be translated in, back into Hebrew rather than the Greek that it's in, it, it would mean that he is the trustworthy one, the unfailing one, the faithful one, the authentic one. In the midst of everything that's perverse, in the, in the midst of everything that's, that's contorted and distorted and everything that's false, Jesus Christ is the truth. And he says it so plainly to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth. There is no truth exists outside of me and there is no falsehood inside of me. I am utterly and eternally and infinitely dependable. And Jesus comes to the church here and he says, I am the true one, I am the trustworthy one. But he goes beyond that to reflect to them, not only can you trust me because I'm trustworthy and that, that I am true without falsehood, but I am the true one in the sense that I am able to keep the promises that I have made to you. I'm not just being honest with you, I'm being honorable with you. That is, I have the promises that I've made to you, I am going to be true to my word. And so Jesus is recalling his promises that he has made to his bride here, the church, and really to the people of God and the kingdom of God, that he is the true one. He is the faithful initiator of the covenant, and he is the faithful um, fulfiller of the covenant. He is the faithful one to keep all of the covenant's promises. Now, if you're like me and you're like probably just about any honest Christian, there are times when you come against the promises of God and the promises that he makes to you just seem so entirely, unbelievably good that there's no way that God could ever keep them. This is, again, by the way, a reminder from Jesus who he says over and over throughout the scriptures, God reminds us that every promise that he has made to his people, he will keep. And he has to keep reminding us of that because we keep doubting it. But he is true to himself. And he is the one who opens doors. And he says he, is the, he holds the key of David. Now he talks about this key and he talks about the doors. He reminds us of the, the one who keeps the key to the temple here, it seems he's indicating here. There's a godly king in Israel's history named King Hezekiah in Judah. And Judah and, and Hezekiah, when he was leading Judah in, in righteous ways, had a faithful priest, a faithful servant, that is, if you will, a prime minister of the kingdom. His name was Eliakim. And King Hezekiah received the key of the chief steward of the king's household, and as a representative of the king, Eliakim was trusted and he was, he was authorized to exercise full administrative authority in the king's name. Eliakim was sort of, if you will, like a prince in Hezekiah's kingdom. And so Eliakim held this key, so to speak. But you say, well, that's, that's great, that's wonderful, and, and certainly it's great to think that there's a prince, that there's a second in command, but... Do you recognize the significance of what's taking place in Judah? This is David's kingdom. This is God's kingdom. And what was given to Eliakim by the authority that was vested in King Hezekiah as an anointed king from God himself is that Eliakim was seen as a steward, really not just of Israel, but of David's house, of God's kingdom. And so the immediate background to this phrase that I, I have the key 
of the house of David here is that Jesus is saying, I am, I am bearing on myself the claim that the Jews are saying they have in this town, that they have a corner on God. They have a corner on God's covenant. And Jesus is calling the Church of Philadelphia to recognize that Jesus is the center of their faith. He is the center of their church. Anyone saying otherwise has no authority to say so. Anyone seeking anything else, anyone having any different agenda in their religious gathering other than to proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father has no basis and has no authority from God. Jesus is saying so long as you seek after me as so long as I am at the center of your church and you're pursuing me. All authority is vested in you through me. And so Christ had been given the absolute and exclusive power to give entrance and to exclude people from the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying here, there will be some in your city who because they have rejected me, they will never see the kingdom of God. I have the key. They will be locked out. The door will be shut on them. And so he says, I give to you an open door. We have come across this just a few times in the scriptures, what an open door means. But essentially, it really just means um, connotatively what we would think of. And that is, it's an opportunity. We use that type of lingo all the time. It's, it's an opportunity, but when Jesus says there's an open door, it's, it's something of a significant opportunity. When used in Scripture and biblically, it, it seems to indicate that it's always an opportunity for the gospel's advance. And so it seems that Jesus is sharing with the people in Philadelphia that he is going to make these people a greater messenger for the gospel, even though they are a weak congregation. We'll talk about their weakness in a minute. But even though they, they're a weak congregation, he is going to give them a great opportunity. Now, by the way, this happens so often in our lives. So often the opportunity seems to outweigh what we consider ourselves to be like. Say, God, I, I don't know if I can walk through that door. I, I don't know how, what it takes. It seems the opportunity seems greater than our own assessment of our own strength and our own abilities. But God doesn't make assessments like you and I do. And God is holding out before the Church of Philadelphia this great opportunity for this small band of believers. This is often how God works. He uses a man and his three sons to build a gigantic ark to rescue the world. God uses a barren woman to birth a son who will become the father of a great nation. God uses an un, almost an unnamed young woman, a virgin, to bring forth his own son, the son of a carpenter then. Often I think uh, as God through Jesus Christ stands before us with great opportunities and great open doors, we, we just have the math wrong. We have the math wrong because our faith is, is misplaced. We have the math wrong because we think 
If there's a great opportunity, then it takes a great person to seize hold of the great opportunity. God says, I just really desire for you to just present yourself as a servant. It never was meant that a great person would equal the great opportunity. It's never been that way. And so just read through every story of anybody that I've ever used in Scripture, and it's never been about their greatness that I've used them. It's always been about their weakness, their smallness. And so really it's just because of misplaced faith. We, we would say, well, I just, I, uh, I'm telling you honestly, I don't have faith in myself. That's why I'm not going to walk through that door. No, that's actually the problem is you're still assessing your own self. It's when you place your faith in the greatness of our God that you can walk through a door even though you're small. placing our faith in that way. And so there's this open door. Jesus is claiming that he has absolute authority to give admission to the messianic kingdom. Jesus is claiming to have sovereign control over his church. And Jesus rejoices in a few things about them. He rejoices even though recognizing that they're weak. We don't know exactly why he calls them weak, um, but he says it seems that they have little strength in that way. Perhaps it was that it was a small church. It's probably likely. Perhaps it was even that they had seemingly little influence. They, They were salt and light, but maybe not such a great salt and light in the city. Maybe they were just a no name church. Nobody really knew about them. Perhaps it's even that they some some poverty had become. Uh, had afflicted them. And so the resources that they're pulling together to serve God and to serve one another were just very meager. It was hard to even assess them, maybe like the bottom of the widow's barrel. And so perhaps maybe even they're poor, but the emphasis here isn't upon their weakness. It's upon their faithfulness. And so he says, though you were weak, you kept my word. What's the big deal then? I mean, okay, they're being faithful. They, they kept the word. I mean, let's move on past this. But, but recognize what's going on here. What's the most significant possession that the church has? It's the word of God. It seems that God has blessed us from, from the highest heavens with this most precious thing, the word of God, the Bible. And the truth that's within the scriptures, you have kept the one thing I gave you to keep. I remember when our, especially when our our girls were little and they would set up their kitchen in our playroom and they would play with their little food and their little kitchen, the refrigerator and the little oven. And they would bring these little plastic plates to Jennifer and I. And on these plastic plates would be, you know, fake peas and a T-bone steak, and, you know, a little teacup. And we were told to keep these things. And then soon, their busy minds would take them back right away. We weren't able to keep them for very long. Or maybe we didn't want to keep them as long, and we would give them back somehow creatively so as not to hurt their feelings that we were done playing with the peas and the steak. What is happening here in this is that 
the people had received the word of God. And they kept keeping it. They lived in the word of God. And the word of God was doing some things in their congregation that was creative, like God has always been doing since the beginning of time. They were creative. The word of God was bringing transformational in their lives. The word of God was conforming them into the image of, of Jesus Christ. And they were keeping this word. They were keeping it in such a way that he says, one of the fruits, one of the ways in which I can tell that you have been keeping my word is you have not denied my name. You have lived according to my reputation in this perverse place. And he, he really announces what we, what we see here as a curse. But I want to share with you at least one commentator's um, suggestion on this as well. And that is God's word divides, and those who will be redeemed by God's word will be gloriously accepted into his presence on that day of judgment. But those who have denied God's word, have hardened their heart against God's word, he will deny himself, and they will be banished eternally from his presence. And so we see here that they dwell in a very wicked place, and some will be cast off on that day because they have not believed upon the word of God that was preached by this church and and abroad. And he says something here. He says, there will be a time when when some of them will come and they will bow down to your feet. We don't have any historical data on the future of this church after this writing. We don't have very much to go on. We, We don't know, for example, if if there was some sort of triumph of the church in which the leaders, especially the religious leaders in the town or maybe even the city leaders came and paid some sort of homage to the church. And so one commentator that I read offered this. Notice that he says, they will bow down to your feet and they will acknowledge that you loved me, that you loved God. He says, church in Philadelphia it will not always be that they won't hear the word of Christ. The commentator goes on to say, there will be some who with you in the congregation will bow together and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be some who join your church. Some of those pagans, some of those from the synagogue of Satan will be redeemed. They will bow with you before Christ. They will bow at your feet. They will then come to be in your midst in your gathering. And you will look around and say, how did this come to be? All glory be to Christ. A suggestion there. Well, we really don't know how this this promise works itself out. Um, There is some eschatological uh, implications here as well. In time to come, Jesus is saying to his church that there will be a great tribulation in which he will preserve them. And by the way, the church of Philadelphia actually historically becomes the longest lasting church. It goes, I think, into the fourth century uh, following Christ. It's the longest lasting church uh, of all the seven churches. 
So what does Jesus promise to them that he will give to them? He will make them to be a pillar in the temple of, of his God, of my God. Philadelphia had many pillars, and there's a picture up here on the PowerPoint. It's a little bit faded in the background, but, but you see the pillars, and pillars were all over this city. And the reason why is this city started by that one king, his brother gave him that. He wanted to recognize other people, and so he began to just build pillars, around the city, sort of like what we think of as monuments or statues, but these would be pillars. And, and if you had done something significant or become prominent in the city, your name would be engraved on, these, on a pillar. You would have a pillar for yourself in the middle of the city or around the city. And so there's very many pillars around the city. And even to this day, there's still some that are standing, whether from this civilization or, or others that had copied it. But Jesus says, it will not be here in Philadelphia that you will be recognized. Be recognized in a far greater way, in a far more wonderful way, in the temple that is the presence of my God. That is, when others will gather around you in time to come, they will know of your testimony that you held fast to the word of Christ, even though you were in devil's den in Philadelphia. Hey, folks, I really believe that someday you and I will be hearing some of the stories of these faithful in Philadelphia. We'll be hearing the stories of how they were faithful and, and the, the opposition and the way in which they were just living out in, in, in many ways a normal life, behaving like the Word of God was ruling over their hearts. But this is a testimony to us as well that, that we, in, in no ways ought to diminish the effect that God desires to have through us for eternity. And on this pillar, notice what he will write. It'll be the name of my God. It'll be a, a new name. On this pillar will be the name of God. Why would it be the name of God? Perhaps it'll be a particular, you know, truth about God, that he was faithful or that he was the God of peace or the God of comfort or the God of courage or the God of refuge or the God of truth. Perhaps it'll be that, but it'll be the name of God that is glorified then. And when we hear the story of these overcomers from Philadelphia, we will be drawn into just another chapter of worship of the great things that God has done. And so the scene has been such a quiet one uh, here in Philadelphia. We, we don't know all of the tumult. We're not given a whole lot of descriptors. But the overcomer that is written here seems to have a significant promise given to him. Now, in Ephesus, the overcomer would receive this a great reward. In Smyrna... The opposition was there in the midst of persecution, but the overcomer would stand fast in the face of the persecution. And Pergamus, which was about ready to be drowned out in wilderness, the overcomer resisted the flood and he stayed true to it. And Thyatira, that was being seduced by Jezebel, as we learned, the overcomer would resist her teachings. And in Sardis, the nature of the overcomer 
would, that, would be that he would not defile himself with the things that were dead, that he would make things come alive. But what does Jesus tell the church in Philadelphia it will take to be an overcomer? It will take to be an overcomer in Philadelphia to hold fast to what you have been taught, lest someone steal your crown. Now, some might say, well, that might mean maybe someone loses their salvation. Really, the danger that's being um, alerted to by Jesus here is do not let your true character, do not let what has begun in you slip away. While you're loving Jesus, while you're bringing his word to the middle, do not let who you are slip away. And so he says, remain genuine. Keep the word. Hold fast. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I do not, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them in the world. This is God's desire that not that his people would become like the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There are times when the fringes of our witness just are tattered and worn. The robes of righteousness that we wear around the town and around our community, they're just not hemmed up. We're not holding fast to the purity of the word of Christ. We're not watching on guard for the testimony of Christ in our lives. And the the edges have become frayed and salt loses its savor in us. Jesus is saying, don't let it be this way. The church in Philadelphia was the only one of the seven churches to survive an extended period of time. Some of those churches, as you know, did not even last another hundred years. But this little church, this church that had little strength, endured. I had mentioned before until the fourth century, now looking upon my notes, this little church endured historically a thousand years. Finally, until the Muslim forces of the Byzantine Empire and the Turkish forces finally overwhelmed it. It was the last Christian city to fall. Inwardly, the church in Philadelphia stood fast all those years until the culture of the Ottoman Empire really drowned out the city. So what do we take away from this this morning? Here's some truths that I believe, some lessons from the open door. Number one, Faithfulness in ministry becomes a platform for greater opportunities. I know your works. This was not a church that was busting out the seams in the middle of New York City. It was a church that was keeping the word of Christ precious in their gathering. Living like the word of Christ was changing their lives in dynamic ways giving what little strength they had and saying, this is all we have, but it's for you, Jesus Christ. Faithfulness in ministry 
is great soil for great opportunities. He says, I know your works. He also says, I know your size. I know your strength. And I'm still going to open a door for you. Why? Because God is the God of doors, lesson number two. God is the God of doors. God is sovereign over doors. And every door that God opens or that God shuts for his church serves his wise purposes. God is the God of doors. And then thirdly, then, then that means that the doors for the church are opportunities for the advance of the gospel. These aren't just trivial doors. These aren't just everyday doors. These are doors for the gospel's advance. So how does the church respond to these open doors? Well, the church should be faithful to walk through open doors in obedience to Jesus' invitation. There's a lot of times when the Church of Christ, historically and even even antidotally, uh, is given open doors, and many times Jesus' people, they look at the door, they look at the color of the door, they look at all things about the door, look into the door to see what's out there, they recognize they're on one side of the door, they have a fascination with the door. The whole reason the door is open and not a window is to walk through it, not to just see it. The church of Christ is called not unto just courage, but the church of Christ is called unto faithful obedience to just walk through the doors that Jesus opens. They need to be faithful. The door is opened so the church can obey. And woe be to the church who does not walk through the doors that Jesus opens. Those who are faithful to Christ will be eternally and immovably established with no more cause for fear. Jesus gives an immediate promise here to the people. When the earth trembles, you're used to running. You have been programmed to run when the ground shakes underneath your feet. When Jennifer and I were in South Africa, not speaking about earthquakes, but let me relate something different. They have power shedding, electricity is turned off for at least eight hours a day at scheduled times. We'd be sitting in a public place and the lights everywhere would go off and there would be no screaming, no gasp. Everybody was used to it. The people in Philadelphia were used to the ground shaking, but they still were running. And Jesus is saying there's coming a day when the, when the ground underneath you is sure and it is steadfast, and you will not be on the outside of the temple of God on that day. You will be safe and secure, and you will never have shaking feet underneath you in eternity with me. Troubled soul this morning. If this word finds you in a time of fear, even legitimate concerns, it's okay to run when there's an earthquake. Even legitimate concerns, Jesus says to you, 
That is for this time. But it will not always be so. You will be established like a pillar inside in the very presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And fears and dangers of this life will never be repeated. And when you are there, the name of God will be inscribed upon you in such a way that your identity in heaven is lost in the greatness of the character and nature of God. It may be in such a way, if I can just fuel your imagination biblically a little bit, you are greeted, you are known as not just John or Sally or whatever. You're known, oh, you are God's loved one. Oh, you are the one God was faithful to. Oh, you are the one that God set his love upon in such a powerful way. Because I learned this a little bit in, in an, from an animated illustration, if I can. Toy Story. Andy's a young boy growing up and loses interest in his toys. But one toy in particular that he seemed to really enjoy and have fond memories of playing with, he wrote in his childish writing on the bottom of his boot, his name. On the bottom of Woody's boot is the name what? Andy. And all through the stories, Woody will always look at the bottom of his boot and say, I am owned by Andy, and that makes me special. There is coming a day when God engraves his name upon those who overcome. And I think we're going to lift up our sandals on a Tuesday morning in eternity and look at the name of God again. And it might be for the billionth time, and we still won't get over it. Why? Because God began engraving our names in the palms and the feet of his son on the cross. And they will never be removed. It's permanent. In Jesus Christ, you have a name but it is the name of God himself that works through you by the power of his word to deliver you to a dangerless, fearless place and establish you in, a, in the highest of heavens, in the presence of God Almighty. Church, will you let the word of God do the work of God in your life so that all may see the work of God and rejoice with him in his word. Let's pray.